Welcome to Strong Not Starving. My name is Marcus Kane, and if you want to beat binge eating and create a rewarding dynamic with food, exercise, and body image, you're in the right place. The information in this podcast, as valuable as it is, is no substitute for medical advice. In today's episode, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Sarah Desange and Stephanie Michelle, the absolute dream team from the Life After Diets podcast. And you know, I'm not sure where to begin in introducing this episode or describing exactly how many things I love about the Life After Diets podcast. Often I feel like whenever something is on my mind, whenever I have a question, whenever something is bugging me about the process of breaking patterns of disordered eating or, you know, eating disorder recovery, something will be often on my mind for a while. Something that doesn't sit right in terms of, you know, what I might have gotten from, quote, the textbook or what the common answer to things or the common solution to a particular situation is meant to be, and it won't be sitting well with me. And then sure enough, Sarah and Stephanie will address that exact topic, whatever it is I've been thinking about with grace and nuance and a level of empathy and attention to detail that you very rarely see. So with that said, I've been really looking forward to releasing this episode, and if you haven't met them already, allow me to introduce you to Sarah and Stephanie. We have the Life After Diets crew on board. Sarah, Steph, how are you doing? Hi, hey, Marcus. Hey, how you doing? I'm, I'm good. So you good, good to have you. Sorry, you good, Steph? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm good. My, my, my daughter's homesick today, so it's been like, you know, one of those days. One of those mornings, I should say. But here I am. I'm all good. It's good to be here. Well, you mentioned when I appeared on your podcast a few weeks ago now that I was like your first male guest. This is my first episode that has more than two people on it. So this is a first for me too. So this is very, very, very cool. We've done it a couple of times now. It tends to work okay. But when there's three of you, it's a, it's a different dynamic for sure. But well, you go well, it's a bit more time in the bit more time in the editing suite normally <laughs> that's okay i can edit just fine but firstly i'd love to hear about the life after diets origin story like how did you guys hook up and start doing what it is that you're doing how did how did that whole thing come to be well, we met on Instagram. I was already on Instagram. And then this chick called I am Stephanie Michelle was just commenting on all my stuff. And I was like, who is this person? I did. You did. Yeah. Oh, you came, you obviously, was... you, you'd done the course where you're like, follow the people in your genre, interact with their posts. <laughs> Which drives me nuts now. <laughs> right? Well, oh also, you're just, I can't stand when I get the comments like, yeah, that's right. So important, Steph. <laughs> But the fact is, I can't remember what the comments were, but they were actually like proper thoughts that I agreed with. And I remember clicking on your profile. And when I started looking at your post, and you've heard me say this before, Steph, I was like, yes, yes. Like everything you were saying just really resonated. And so it was the first time I think somebody had done that tactic, I suppose. And I've gone to their profile and gone like, this is great. And at that time, I was setting up my YouTube channel and I was doing recovery stories and I was looking for people who had recovered and who were happy to talk about it. So I invited Steph on to my YouTube channel. So the first time we actually spoke to each other and heard each other's voices was when we met on during the recording for that. 
And then I think after that, you invited me to do an Instagram live. I think you reached yeah. out after that. I was big on those for a while. See, when I, I remember when I first got onto Instagram, I was like, oh, the binge eating therapist. I'll never rise to the ranks of the binge eating therapist. Like she, she is just like on another level. Um, and then you did reach out to me and and I went on yours. And then this was around the time that Instagram lives were really big. And so I guess I don't even remember, but I guess I must have had you on it. And we had a nice banter back and forth. And we went on to what was what was the clubhouse? Is that even still around? Oh, my God. There was so much noise about that for a while. Like all those marketing people that would advise you to go and comment on 50 other people's profiles and whatever, they were all like, okay, so after you comment on 50 other people's profiles with meaningless shit, then you need to go on to Clubhouse. And that, and where the where the fuck is Clubhouse? I, I, don't I think know. I deleted it. <laughs> like I deleted gone. it from my phone because I was like, I have no use for this. Yeah. Um, but we did, we did do a couple of rounds of it together and it was, it had a nice response. We had a good turnout and we had lots of questions it was it was actually good um not my particular it wasn't my favorite format but we did that and I think it was after that I feel like I was quite an early adopter of podcasts I was listening to podcasts in 2011 when none of my friends no one seemed to know what they were and I remember back then thinking ah, oh, I would love to do a podcast but there's too many already <laughs> <laughs> there's always Only. a part of me that feels like I kept missing the boat missing the boat about doing this and there was a few times people commented on the Instagram lives and in Clubhouse you guys should do a podcast and I thought yeah we should do a podcast so I sent Steph a message and I said do you fancy I don't even know whether the word the name life after diets came out it was just in my head right from the off and I suggested it to you and asked if you had any other suggestions and we decided to just do 10 episodes we were going to put them out there and just see what the response was like and I think we'd recorded the second episode when we were both basically saying yeah no we're in we want to do this we don't care if no one else likes it we're having a good time yeah we were having fun Mm -hmm. I think we yeah (laughs) here we are the name encapsulates so much of what I like about what you guys do and one of the reasons why I I recommend your podcast to people and this whole idea that we're talking about life after diets, you know, not necessarily just talking about recovery from eating disorders. We're talking about life after diets and what that is. And something I really appreciate about this, the work that you guys put out there is how nuanced and real the message that you guys have about what life after diets really is. Like your message surrounding that is fantastic because, you know, you very regularly talk about things like how, often even for the happiest and most fulfilled people, even after recovering from an eating disorder and after moving past all these things, you know, loving the way our bodies look every single day is just not a reality for most people, even like people who don't have an experience of of disordered eating and how not struggling with an eating disorder doesn't necessarily mean not having any fucking problems. Like, I think you guys handle this really, really well, because there's a lot of I feel like there's a lot of platforms and a lot of content content out there that really whitewashes the journey and paints this picture of like, okay, you're going to do this and you're going to get through it and then everything's going to be amazing. And it's like, no, that's not how it fucking works. A lot of people, at least in my experience, they come out the other side of of maybe struggling with body image or struggling with food. And it's almost a little bit shocking 
for them because they're like, wow, actually it's painful over here. There's stuff that I haven't been dealing with that now I need to face that I'm not distracted from. And I think you guys do a, a really awesome job of addressing that and talking about that. Is there anything that you can share with us today ab- about that whole process? Well, firstly, thanks for saying that. I appreciate that. But whatever the vulnerability is that both Steph and I and you, Marcus, have had that led to developing an eating disorder, even if you manage to get a handle on the eating disorder, that vulnerability is still there. And the vulnerability is whatever those needs are, whatever it is that we're trying to meet through playing it out with food. So Steph and I sometimes joke that a lot of our patterns around food just play out elsewhere. So how I was with food and how I sometimes measure my sense of am I doing enough, am I being enough is now through my work. You see, it just jumps almost onto something else. So we explore a lot of that. And also, I think our first episode we were, I remember thinking, gosh, we're so similar. We're just going to be talking about the same stuff and agreeing and that's going to be lovely. And it's strange because there's these certain places, I think, like our, there's a foundation where we are very similar and then we really diverge, I think, in the way that we approach something. So I'll have people say, oh, one week I'm really relating to what you're saying and then one week I'm really relating to what Steph's saying. And of course, so many people are being told that dieting, trying to control food is what is so problematic in disordered eating so they're going okay I need to stop dieting but now what and Mm. that was the whole thing behind the podcast was all very well telling people don't diet don't restrict this is problematic yes it is but what am I supposed to do if I'm not doing that I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing instead preach yes but to, to that point and to the point you make about us being having different approaches and different opinions and we do have we have a reel somewhere that you recently made Sarah about where we're like, oh, no, no, it's my idea for a reel. Um, I have an idea where I want to like c- capture all the clips where I'm like, well, I, I disagree with that. Well, actually, I don't think so. I think this because we do that uh, a bit. And I think that maybe it, it is an element of having two different experiences where it's like recovery doesn't look like this. It's not always about like if you habituate this food, you become OK with it. Like there's lots of different ways that recovery looks and happens and life after that looks and happens. And I think it's this idea about, I think both of us value being open to like what that actually is instead of what our identities want that to be, because mm-hmm. that speaks more to this, like the the dogma mentality that I think I, per, I it's just inherently, I want to rebel against this idea that like, this is the, this is the, that's not the answer. And this is um, more like having conversations about it because I think it's just so much more realistic and it's more open-minded, which to me is part of getting away from all the stuff, like all, all the beliefs that we have to do it this way. And this is, this is the way things are. And this is the identity we want. And um, it's, it's more the conversation, I think, mm. than the answers. Cause I've definitely seen a lot of people in their efforts to put dieting behind them and, live free from that, almost create a new set of rules that they're anxious about following, almost like, oh, if I ate that, does this, does this count as a binge? Is this a binge? What if I if if I looked at myself in the mirror for like a second too long, is is that like a, a bad thing? Like the other day I I didn't oh, I didn't like how I felt in this particular set of clothing. Does that mean I'm not as far along as I, I thought I was? Or the other day someone said this and that upset me. Does that mean I'm I'm not as far as I thought I was? Or does that mean I'm failing at this? And 
yeah, it's it's so easy to have that tendency to lean towards something that's very black and white and very rigid in the arena of like dieting and that kind of mindset getting us into trouble, but then taking that very black and white mindset and then applying it to something that's meant to free us from all that. Yeah, exactly. That comes up with questions like when we've talked about, is it okay to weigh myself? for example, because the general thinking is it's not a good idea in recovery. And I would still err on that side for most people. But there is another side of it for some people where it can like perform a function or it can be okay. It's not as triggering for that person. Or like keeping foods in the house is another one as well. In the very kind of permission, all in recovery, you should have all the foods in the house. That's how you know you're recovered. And anything about not having the foods in the house is restrictive. And that's the eating disorder talking. And this is where we get into really nuanced territory and I think you're so right that black and white thinking that's in the eating disorder is often picked up and applied to recovery in a very black and white way Mm. Steph what do you what have you seen with that kind of black and white thinking making its way into things that are you know meant to be liberating (laughs) it's interesting I feel like there's different types of clients it's like this you know like the type a kind of people pleasing, uh, straight A student kind of thing. It's, it's this a lot was like, and these are the clients who are, or the listeners who will take notes on every single thing you say and like, like, right. Okay. Okay. I, I, okay. This is how it should be. And it's, it's, it's kind of just trying to deconstruct that a little bit to be like, what we write down one day <laughs> might not apply tomorrow <laughs> and oh, yeah. like leaving room for all of the different con like, context matters and the time like even where you are in recovery matters um i mean i i personally i remember actually in the beginning of our recordings i can't remember the specific details of what it was but i remember sarah you had a your take on something was not as it it was something i don't remember what it was about wasn't boundaries no, it was about, um, oh, I know that episode has evolved. It's funny because we want to, I want to re-record some episodes that we did a long time ago because I've, my position on things or my, my perspective on things has changed or it's evolved. Um, maybe it was something around fat phobia. I think it was around this and, and, and you, you had said something and I was kind of like, oh no, I, I think this, because I was very bound to like the, um, n- like just what you were supposed to believe about something. And, I remember like learning from you at that point to be like, oh, right. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to look just like this. Like it doesn't have to be just about this thing. Um, And you, and I remember I, there was this moment where that happened. I remember sitting in my closet <laughs> where I used to record and thinking like, oh yeah, like that's kind of, I, I almost saw my own black and white application to certain concepts in the beginning when they were kind of, they were newer to me. Um, it's now been two more years on top of that. So, so things, you know, I've sort of allowed myself to even like, be like, all right, let me look at it this way. Let me look at it that way. Um, so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, um, saying that I'm not susceptible to, to some of these things that when I, when I recovered, I really like grasped onto and attached to some ideas that helped me. Uh, and I, I think that I needed to do that for a little while and then gradually like to 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 sort of even expand beyond that and um, look at things from just, yeah, just, just there's no one point of view. Mm. What you said there about something really grabbed me in there about things that we feel we're supposed to believe. 
and I know that's a big sticking point for a lot of the people that I, I chat with and I'm maybe you guys have seen it as well where like someone might say I know I'm supposed to believe this about myself or I know that I'm supposed to believe this about food or I know that this is what I'm meant to believe but the reality is that I just don't fucking believe it like Sarah um I'd, I'd love to know a bit of your perspective on on that like what what would you say when people are confronted with that when they're like okay apparently in recovery i'm supposed to believe this about myself but i just don't it comes up the most when someone will say something like i know i'm not supposed to be thinking about weight loss or i know i'm not supposed to want to lose weight or something like that and i always say this is not a supposed to this is not we really need to remove the morality that this is a right and wrong thing that the correct way to do it is to think like this the question, if we can just turn it round to, okay, I'm, I'm, can't stop thinking about losing weight, and I want to lose weight, rather than saying that you shouldn't want that, it's acknowledging that that's there, and then going, okay, what is the impact of this belief on me? So I'll say to people, what happens to your relationship with food and your relationship with yourself when you are more focused on weight loss? And a lot of people can say, oh, it gets so much worse, and it's terrible. It's this, that, and the other. If anyone says it's not a problem. Why change anything that's not a problem if you don't perceive it to be a problem? So I tend to just reframe it as what is serving us and what is the outcome of following these beliefs? And also with something like the desire to lose weight, to recognize that most people are probably not going to get rid of that desire. It's been there for years and it's reinforced a lot in our culture as well. So I rephrase it as rather than it's about not wanting to lose weight anymore, it's how do you manage that desire to lose weight so that it doesn't derail your recovery because people will try to kid themselves that they don't want to anymore like no no no, I'm not thinking like that I'm not thinking like that and they push it back they push it into their subconscious and I think the stuff that really trips us up in our behavior when we're behaving ways that we don't understand or we can't make sense of is because it's things that are coming from outside of our awareness well something about the honesty of that and recognizing that beliefs are our conditioning usually and then the impact that those beliefs have. And then we're looking at reframes and how to challenge it and intentions. I'm big on intentions. So sometimes one of the things that I'll do with permission from an intention perspective is we look at the idea of, okay, you can have anything, anything you want at any time. You're going to put one condition on it that you're just going to really try to enjoy it and experience it. doesn't have to be perfect mindful eating. That doesn't mean no distractions. It just means focusing on shifting the way that you eat. I've gone slightly away from what you said because I can feel myself wanting to run off down another train. So I no. will bring it back. But that's how I would think about the beliefs. Steph, do you have something that you wanted to add? Yeah, to it's so interesting. I had a this morning, I had a, a submission in my email for coaching and the description of the, you know, I asked some questions in the application about what the, you know, brief history and what's kind of what's going on. <clears throat> And then we'll meet to talk about it. And a lot of times you're, you're getting like, you know, the, cl the classic sort of like, I can't stop, you know, like I, I was on these diets and I'm very restrictive, but then I binge and it's kind of straightforward. But every now and then I'll get one like this, which essentially was someone saying, I've done this work. I've actually, I've worked with a dietitian in the past. Um, I have, I'm not binging anymore. I'm not restricting anymore. Um, that's all okay. What I'm left with is, this feeling like I'm so unhappy in my body 
that I don't know if it's worth it. And so when I used to get queries like that, I was like, okay, like going back, you know, a few years ago, I, I really admittedly would be like, okay, then it's my job to make this person understand that it's worth it and to be, and to get them to be more neutral in their body, which viably could be, absolutely could be a goal. But now I come back and I say to this person, like, what's the goal then? Like for therapy is I'm not here to change your mind. Like that isn't, doesn't have to be the point because I'm open to the idea that like, maybe it's not worth it for you. And, and it's up to the person to sort of say, I'm just here to explore that. I'm here to get some tools to like, see if I'm missing something on the body image perspective or the body neutrality angle that maybe could help me make more peace and that that's viable, but it's not about convincing anyone that they need to do this a certain way and they need to be okay with their bodies because that's the better way. You know what I mean? Like, and it is for me, <laughs> like for me personally, <laughs> it has been worth it. And that is the, for, for me right now in my life, the better way for me, but to just stay, staying open to this idea of like what recovery is supposed to bring you, how you're supposed to feel afterwards and what the goal is supposed to be. You know what I mean? Like that is, I have a lot more tolerance now for not tolerance, but more open-mindedness. I think it's less threatening to me and my own identity to, to say like, yeah, what's true for you? And what is it that you'd like to, to be working on or what, what are you here for? Because I'm not the one that's going to decide what that should be. Um, and I think before that was really hard because my recovery was newer and I needed to feel like, no, no, no. <laughs> like you have, I, it's, it's, it's safer to think about it in terms of like, this is, this is the way, <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause, cause I, you know, and so that's even changing for me. I'm quite, quite vulnerable, I guess here. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it, it just sounds like you were, you were saying that at, at that particular point, you were at a stage where, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was, it sounds like there was almost a part of you that was concerned that recovery might be wrong or that you know that, you know like oh, I'm not, not that recovery was wrong but like almost like in order for my own body neutrality to feel intact I really had to side with it <laughs> like I really had to like really hold it tight and I guess now it feels like I don't know there's just it's like what well, maybe for someone else I don't know it's just that might not be someone else's experience that they need that or and I don't feel I don't need to feel threatened by that like that doesn't need to be I think the more you're in recovery right you the more you get comfortable with who who, who you are and what you feel and what's right for you it's, it becomes much more about like your own sense of these all these things rather than like learning from what's on a Instagram scroll you know or mm -hmm. what someone's blogging about or the podcast that said this and and feeling like that's that's what I'm supposed to be getting to or that's that's how I should feel um and more just tuning into like what's right for me and I feel much more confident in that now so if it's not right for somebody else that doesn't threaten me essentially that confidence and self-assurance that only comes with reps over time yeah <laughs> reps like over time that's definitely something that comes up in a, a bunch of conversations or is, especially recently for some reason, maybe I'm just remembering recent conversations more and I'm having some kind of like bias towards the more recent conversations I've had. But sometimes people will often say like, I, you know, I'm doing it. I'm doing the thing. 
but it still feels like riding a unicycle while juggling flaming basketballs. And it's like, okay, cool. You're, you're doing the thing. So keep doing the thing, the kind of peace and confidence that you're looking for just comes with giving yourself more time, experiencing that in a way that where it kind of positively reinforces itself. Like, so there's that, like, Sarah, what would you say about, like, do you have a, like, anything that you would say or an opinion on that point in time when maybe things are kind of, you know, we're doing the thing, we're going well, we're not dieting anymore, we're making positive steps, but it still feels very fragile? I think there's something to be said of where it's coming from because, and, and Steph and I have talked about this before as well, that some people, for example, with the all-in approach, they will go all-in because they're working with a practitioner that has said, no, if you go all in, if you do what I tell you to do, because I'm telling you to do the same thing that I did, that this will be the result. And maybe it would, but it's very different when we're doing something from a place of compliance than when it feels like it's coming from us. Mm. And so when I've heard Steph talk about that moment when she decided to go all in, what it sounded like is that it came from her. Like it came, yes, she'd read the fuck it diet. So this message had been given to her, but she took it and was like, Yes, this is for me. This is what I need to do. And it comes from something inside. So I guess if somebody's in that place where they feel like they are, they're, they're panicking or like juggling, blaming basketballs on a unicycle, I think there's something about the self. Like, where is this coming from? Because if you're putting all your faith in another person, but you're not really bought into it, you don't really see that this is for you. There's something, I think, in recovery about finding our autonomy. There's mm -hmm. so much around control, right, with food. And we see control as not being a particularly healthy thing in the eating disorder world. But the healthy version of control is autonomy. It's feeling like we have some choice, some influence to be self-directive. And that's why I love when Steph's talking about um, letting go of that outcome, not assuming that this is where the client needs to be. We become much, much more effective helpers to people at that point because they are then self-directed, but they're not doing it on their own. They've yeah. got that handhold. Like we do need the voices of people who have trodden similar paths. We need to feel resonance. We need to know, okay, people have done this before me. I can do this. So it's a really, it's a balance really between, it's a constant dance probably as well between getting that information and that support from a professional and also trying to bring in your own sense of agency and autonomy. And I feel like that is missing in some of the programs that are out there that are supposed to help people with this. Oh, absolutely. That actually touches on something that I've been thinking a lot about recently, which is the whole smart goals thing, like goals that are specific and measurable and actionable, actionable and, and repeatable and whatever the hell that acronym stands for. And I found that those goals are very easy to outline and set in an environment where a particular trainer or coach or professional of, of any description is going, all right, I know the exact path here. I know the formula because I did this or the textbook says to do this. And then we do that. So in order to take you from exactly where you are right now to the next rung on the ladder, you need to do this, this, and this. And we're going to outline that very specifically and make it very measurable and very actionable. And recently uh, I've been finding in more and more conversations that my intuition is telling me that some of those goals 
aren't as helpful as allowing space for people to ask some, ask themselves some constructive questions to cultivate that sense of autonomy and actually build more of a sense of awareness rather than just commit to like a, a step-by-step process that gives the illusion of moving up the ladder, so to speak, but it's a, it, it seems like a very artificial way of moving, but then I, I definitely experience a bit of conflict sometimes at the end of sessions when I feel like, mm, did what we get out of this session, can that be translated into something that's, you know, specific and measurable and, and actually actionable, or is this a little bit too esoteric? And more and more, I'm finding that feeling pressure to create SMART goals, acronym SMART goals, is actually getting in the way of things like autonomy and self-awareness. What do, what do you guys think about that? Am I losing my mind here or is no. that a thing? No, I, I have had so many conversations with Mike about that. Like, because I would, I used to be an occupational therapist and we had to write smart goals. We had to, I mean, it was just what you have to do for insurance because it makes it easy for insurance because they don't care about, <laughs> they don't care. They just want the, they just want to see what they need to see so they can pay it or not pay it. Mm-hmm. And it's very black and white. And I remember as an OT, I would be like, but <laughs> no, because like they are making progress, but the smart goal wouldn't show that because the smart goal is focused on this thing. But, but actually there's all these, what's the math thing? What's the thing in math where, ugh, gosh, I'm not gonna remember it. Uh, you have like the number and if, and if, and then you, there's the derivatives of this and it offshoots to this. And I, I can't remember the name of it, but basically it's kind of this idea that nothing is, it doesn't, everything is not just like this to this, to this, to this. If this happens, then there's these possible outcomes. And if any one of those happens, then there's offshoots of those. And it becomes this tree, you know, like this whole mm. thing. It's not just this. And I feel like that's a lot of what this stuff is. And I feel like every episode that we turn out is like trying to get another branch of another tree that's related to another branch of a different part of it. And there's so many different ways that you, that there's so many different branches coming up for people and you can't possibly like really look at them all in one. You could, but, but no, but holy shit. And, <laughs> yeah. And I, and I used to sit there and be like, all right, I feel like I'm not being smart goal enough with my clients. This is what I used to say all the time. And then I would be like, yeah, but I think that's also part of why I'm a different kind of coach. Like, I think that that's actually part of it. Like, (laughs) maybe that's a good thing. And I think still to this day, like I have some clients, again, the ones that are taking notes who want to know, they want the homework and they want the, they want to know the goal and they want to know how to get there step by step. And it's like sort of the way that you approach somebody like that is I do try to have to train myself to be like, okay, let's, let's regroup on like what's been going on. And we've been talking a whole lot, (laughs) like, uh, you know, and let's re re go back into those. And that's kind of how I'm navigating it now is like lots of this theory and, and feelings and attunement and all those invisible things, all these abstract concepts, and then kind of bringing it back into, all right, now, when we look at the concrete stuff and the, like, how is all of that? How do you, how is all of that informing all of this? Um, and asking the, the person, like, how does it feel to you? And, and more and more, I'm actually seeing that the, the, People who have who are like, I want you to give me a formula, are are kind of like, I, I think I think we're good doing it that, like this. Like this is there's there's something's happening here, um, that we're not necessarily trained to. Uh, and 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 not always. I mean, I think sometimes that we do need the concrete, and we do we do need to be kind of pulled back down to center, but but not the way I think that like mainstream would have us believe. 
you know, where smart goals are to pretty mainstream, pretty like that's the way things get done. And I think that that's a belief uh, out there. Mm. What Sarah said about autonomy and and that whole concept and how and how important autonomy is in this process just really made me think about smart goals and how sometimes trying to force a smart goal into a situation where might be reading it as like uh, this could be like a, a cultivating self-awareness moment which is very 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 difficult to put into like a, a measurable smart goal there's i think the more black and white and all or nothing a person is the more up and down emotions tend to be right these big peaks and, and trust and I was joking with a friend of mine because we both relate to this idea of like having these moments where you feel like we just, we can't cope. We can't do life. We're going to crash out of life and we're, we're not a grown up. We need someone else to come in and just take over everything and have other times where we're like, oh my goodness, we can smash this life thing. We're killing it, right? These kind of swings and neither one of them actually being the reality, but each time you're in one of them, it feels like, oh no, no, this is who I really am. So when you're up there, you're like, oh, no, I'm here. Like, I've got this now. This is how I am going to stay here. And when you're down here, it's like, oh, no, I was just kidding myself before. This is how I really am. When a client comes into a session and they're in that place where they just feel hopelessness and despair, I stay there with them. I don't try and pull them out. And mm -hmm. that is something that's changed over the years because in early days it would have been, like, oh, no, because they're they're in this place, nothing's going to change, and I need to show them that, that there's hope and all of that. And I realize it's not my job to give them hope. My job in that moment is allow them to just really experience it. So we frame it as an experience. It's like you are experiencing hopelessness now. You're experiencing despair. And when that feeling is allowed, what I often find is a client will come in one week like that and then the next week – is like a spring off of that. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you try and pull people out of where they are, I don't know, something's not being worked through as well. And this is one of my issues, I think, with goals, is this idea that you're always supposed to be moving closer to the goal. And sometimes we need to just come and collapse. Some of us do anyway, not everybody. Mm -hmm. So now, even when I have those moments, and it was one not that long ago where I had this I can't cope with life place, there was part of me that's going, you don't know that this is true. This is just how you're feeling at the moment. And the more, the better we get at naming our experiencing and, and allowing it, the more we can hold on to the sense of us that's constant through this up and down. And that, for me anyway, is what has created more of a sense of safety, is knowing that wherever I am, it's okay. Like, it's just going to, it's going to pass through. That mm. you are the, the constant through those fluctuating states. Yeah, because you lose that. What well, I did anyway, and I see people, they're losing it because when they're in hopelessness and despair, they're believing everything is hopeless, everything is despairing, and that's not going to change. They've just realized how things finally are. But once it can be framed as an experience and allowed, seems to move through. To some, this is where I find it tends to stop, become less extreme in mm -hmm. the ups and downs. So my ups and downs now are like nothing compared to what they were, you know, 10 years ago in the midst of my eating disorder. Um, and I, I think that that sometimes gets missed again, like when people are doing this work, is being allowed those moments of just despair and hopelessness because they're there. Because otherwise, any time despair and hopelessness hits you, you'll just hit the fuck it button and be like, nope, doesn't matter, I'm just going to go on a binge or I'm going to restrict or I'm going to do this because nothing is ever going to work. 
Um, so rather than trying to protect ourselves from those feelings, I think it's about trying to experience them without believing that they are a representation of how things really are. Mm. Which you would never get to if you had to make a goal about it. Yeah. Because if you had to make a goal about it, the goal would be, I want to do X, Y, and Z so I feel better. This mm -hmm. is the outcome I'm looking for. You wouldn't have the option of being like, let's stay here because that would never be the goal. <laughs> you would never <laughs> name that as the goal. Yeah. And you wouldn't under you wouldn't get to the place of being able to like feel out. You know how you know some people say, like, I didn't know I needed that until I got it. Mm -hmm. It's it's I think that with goals, you know, it's kind of like I don't know that you could set them at the outset because you might not even know what they are until you're done. Can I throw a really sticky question into the mix? Please do. Yeah. <laughs> this feeling of of being able to stay in that place or embracing this place or even developing the ability to visit that place without reflexively distracting and dissociating somehow. What if that is not safe for someone? What if they don't have it in them to be in that place without causing themselves harm? That's exactly the work and that's why they're there. So the idea, I guess, for me with a client is that they're not there on their own. So there's a safety, I guess, in having someone there that you trust. Yeah. Um, Steph might, I mean, I'll let Steph speak for herself maybe, but Steph would probably be more likely to look at it through a nervous system perspective, creating safety in the body. But then the work is about creating safety. This is not a case of like you hear me talk about this concept once and you're like, okay, I'll I'll just go and do that thing that you spoke about. Like there is work to be done to create, to get to that place. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Thank you so much for clarifying that because I think uh, a lot of people are taking in this, oh, it's just a feeling or it's just a thought style message that they, you know, that they take in via Instagram content or something like this. And that whole narrative, that whole rhetoric just glosses over the fact that these can be really rough places to be and hence the importance of having somewhere having someone with you like having the right guide having the right support to help you navigate those places and can i just clarify sorry steph i know you want to say something yeah. can i just clarify though it's not it's never embracing it like when you use the word embrace i felt myself go oh no it's not that the word i would use is allowing it because oh, wow. it's okay. here because what happens when we're in pain we resist and then when we resist we create like even more suffering because what normally happens with the resistance is we feel shame because we think we shouldn't be feeling like this. Mm. So it's about learning how not to resist to allow it to move through, but being safe enough to do that because I found that actually when I allow and I don't resist, I suffer much, much less, which ultimately is what most people want anyway. Have you ever done EMDR? I've heard a lot about it, but I've not done it myself personally. So it's... Uh... I have done it and it's, you know, it's a theorized technique, you know, to, it, it does work with trauma and nervous system stuff. Right. Um, but I remember when I was going through it, the therapist that I worked with, I mean, there was this extensive amount of like prep that we had to do just to start the first, just to get to the first story I wanted to tell. Right. And it was like, and I was like, come on, I just want to tell my story. Like, I, I just want to get to the story. I want to make the meaning. I want to, like, I want to, I want you to hear my story and tell me, like, what to do. I wanted to go into the depths of it, even though they felt very despairing. Gosh, we would spend week after week. It would be all this prep work. And I was getting really, like, it just, I was like, oh, this is too slow for me, which is exactly the point, right? Like, the, my nervous system's like, like, move. 
And she just cultivated this whole thing about like, she was talking about like, my, I had to talk about my grandma and feeling safe with my grandma and like, like being by the lake and doing all these things. And it was only when I started my training for somatic um, experiencing that I like, we, I began to like understand what she was doing and that there was way more work in, you know, it's kind of like, yes, the story might matter, might, um, and a, a somebody might want to go into it and that those feelings are very compelling um to, to sort of the almost like this idea of wanting to gravitate towards that despair that hopelessness and um because there's something to resolve there right so there is this instinct to move towards that but before you can move to- towards that you have to establish this the safety um, which is a different part of the nervous system and so there's lots of time spent doing that cultivating this place so that when you when it's time to go into the uh the despair, that there's another, there's a place to go. Like that there's a, there's a way out rather than, oh my gosh, I have all this stuff coming up in me and now I'm left with it and it's swimming around inside of me and I don't know what to do. And so this, um, this idea of like, not just, it's not just about feeling a feeling for the sake of processing the feeling, but also being able to do that and have a safe place to land, to give your nervous system a route where it's like, ah, I can find something to hold on to when I feel this way and that that's an art, you know, like, and it's, mm-hmm. it's a patient process. Um, just to add to the, the layers of that conversation, because um, I didn't realize how, you know, I'm someone who loves to feel, you know, I love to go into the feelings and I just did not realize how important it was to help my nervous system feel safe enough to feel those things. <laughs> um and that that's a, an important thing that we, I think it's very, I don't know that we do that alone, you know, like, because it's, I, I personally, I would need help to be able to cultivate the safety and to help my mind slow down a little. So I'm not rushing towards what hurts so too fast and then overwhelming my system. I need someone to pace me um, because my instinct isn't going to be to do that. Something to hold on to when I feel this way. Can we unpack that for a second? Yeah. Um, So I'll use the example here. Like my grandmother, my mother's mother is like my, and my grandpa, like, oh, I just can't even think about them without like, they are just, they're gone now, but they were just the, when I think of them, it's all I have to do is just think of them. And they, and it's just warmth and security and like love and just the purest. Anyway, I could go on. Um, and I couldn't have necessarily gotten to that in my body. I, I, I knew that I loved them very much and that they were safe places, but I really spent a lot of time cultivating like their, the impact of them on my nervous system, which is coming up for me now because I've done that, right? So there's something about even the thought of them that relatively quickly I can come to this like something very protected here. And being able to access that is kind of quickly now was important because when I go into moments like yesterday, I had a, and this is very small scale, but like I had this interview yesterday and I had, I don't know, I just had prepared for it. And it was, I thought it was great. And then afterwards I felt really deflated and I was like, I don't think I did a good job. Oh, I really don't think I did a good job. And I just read something, you know, I was like, oh, I, don't, I feel like the way they react, you know, I just had this whole moment of like, I'm not enough, I'm not enough. And my body responds to that too, where I'm like, all of a sudden I feel unsafe and I feel like, oh my gosh, like, should I not be doing any of this? Like, you know, question everything. And that kind of feeling 
would have pulled me because I'm re- I really like you know that kind of feeling is very compelling for me and it's just like a place it's very familiar to me to question myself and to be like I'm out of here like I I'm gonna shut down now and that experience yesterday was mitigated for me by my access to being able to be like this is a moment to Sarah's point like this is I'm going through this right now and like I also know what it feels like to be safe and to feel okay and to be taken care of and to like like something and even though I didn't call it my grandparents in that moment it was just like my nervous system knows how to get there my nervous system knows how to say like this is not the sky is not falling um there's safety too there's there's ease too and i i've experienced that and i know how to call that in and i'll use something like that to help me in a moment now this is something obviously was taught to me for a long time and i've practiced for a long time but this anchoring into not necessarily the memory of someone um it's not the story that doesn't matter it's more of that like learning how to help your nervous system get there like how that it knows the way and that it can use that a little bit in times where it's being tempted to be pulled this way very much to sort of counterbalance this push pull and to use that intentionally to 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 help in in these kind of moments and and again this is a i think this is a, a skill you learn i mean it was a skill i learned and i couldn't have done it otherwise because it was just so easy to be pulled into the vortex you know and my nervous system didn't understand any other option it was just like this is what we do we get despair and we go this way and then we stay there we stay there you know it's kind of like oh but i've been trained to sort of go there and then come back out and then go there and then come back out so that's what i was doing you know, yesterday, kind of inadvertently, um, because I learned that route. It's so interesting, because I'm hearing your experience, and I'm like, mine is so different. (laughs) So different. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Marcus was saying, I want to hear yours in a minute, Marcus, when you were saying about having something to hold on to. And when I was listening to you, Steph, I had a few pangs going on as well, because my family isn't emotionally close. I don't have the kind of sense of family um, as being a big thing in my life. So there's a guy called Thomas More. I don't know if either of you heard heard of him. He talks about, he's got a book called um, A Personal Spirituality, which is basically about building up your own belief system. And one of the things he said that has always really struck me is he said that you need to have a life philosophy that includes the darkness. So if you have a life philosophy that life is all about being happy, that's the goal of life. Anytime you're not happy, you're failing. Right? Anytime you're not happy, life is scary. Life is not doing what it's supposed to be doing or you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing in life. So my life philosophy is something along the lines of I have some kind of trust. It's some kind of higher power. I don't call it God. I don't label it. It's not even easy for me to talk about because I don't talk about it. I'm not here to convert anybody to any way of believing or belief system. And I think that suffering has a purpose. And I can see how Many painful things that I have gone through have been teachers and have changed me and enabled me to grow and evolve as a person. So what often happens for me, like in those darker moments as I'm coming through them, especially, is that I'm trying to make meaning out of what I went through. And a lot of that meaning I transpose into my work and particularly like my YouTube channel and stuff because my YouTube channel is often a real reflection of like where my head's been at that week in terms of the topics that might come to mind. Um, I only ever decide on the morning what I'm going to talk about because I found if I plan in advance, it gets to the morning. I'm like, this is just not where I am anymore. So in terms of having something to hold on to, it's some kind of faith. It's some kind of trust in life that there is a kind of bigger meaning somewhere, a bigger picture that we can't see. And I need to believe that to be okay. 
but somebody else can't force themselves to believe that if that just doesn't feel true. And of course, I don't know. But if I die and it's not true, kind of doesn't matter. I just need it to be able to hold on to while I'm alive, which is why I don't feel like I need to be going out trying to convert anyone because I don't know. I don't know mm. what life is all about, really. Mm. And that's me. Now I feel a bit vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you There's so meaning much in for that, sharing Sarah. that. <laughs> <laughs> meaning in that. I would argue, yeah. though, that like, you know, to your point about you not having a, a family, it's not about the family member. It's about whatever it brings you, whatever comes, whatever happens inside of you when you when you're spiritual or when mm. you imagine this, like that's what we're trying. That's what it all is. Yeah. It's whatever yeah, your version of That it was is. just a circumstantial yeah. comparison oh. thing that I did for a brief yeah. moment. That was all. Oh, okay. right. But Marcus, what do you hold on yeah, to? Yeah, what was, yeah. Uh, mine is a little bit kind of reductionist, I guess. It's it's very much something that I, I went to a very patient psychotherapist or psychologist when I was in my early 20s and he was a lovely older guy who like ex-physicist who became a a psychologist and he was big into like eastern philosophy and all this kind of stuff and for years he patiently tried to get me to experience or to have the experience of the physical sensation behind different emotions and actually feel emotions in my body rather than let my head just run away with me in this big snowballing shitstorm of catastrophizing and, and worry. And I didn't really understand what he was talking about. I used to get very frustrated and and just kind of be like, what do you, what do you mean? Where is that feeling in my body? Kind of like, just, I'm, I'm stressed. It's, it's like, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. This can happen and that can happen. And everything's going to burst into flames and I'll die alone and miserable. Like, what do you mean? Where is it in my body? Uh, and I used to get like, my head would just run away with me. And I, I didn't put it into practice until I was literally standing side stage at Wembley arena about to open for slash in London, just terrified that I was going to screw up every, like I'm standing there side stage with 30 seconds before about to go on is like, you know, Wembley arena full of people. And I just had this moment where my head started telling me this story, like, you know, you're going to have one shot at this. This might be the peak of everything that you've worked for, for the last 15 years and you might never achieve anything like this ever again it is all on you right now and my hands started to shake and my knees started to shake and you know not the greatest thing for a guitar player and so I, I kind of reached for the only thing that I had in that moment which is where is the physical feeling and I, I found the the visceral sense of the anxiety or what was going on in my body and started breathing into it and focusing on it and, and bringing my attention to the entire visceral physical experience of what I was going through and just lengthening my exhales and, and breathing into it as if, you know, like when you, you're walking through a dark room and you hit your toe or your knee on something and you go, ah, fuck. And then you've got like nothing else to do, but just breathe into that pain until it starts to fade and goes away. So I started doing that in this moment and the narrative in my head that you're going to screw up, everything's going to go to hell narrative. It was still there, but it's like, it started to get further away. 
like rather than be something that was like being yelled in my ear from really close it was almost like a conversation that i was overhearing other people have in an adjoining room and i i started to recognize what i was experiencing as just the visceral sense of discomfort that when i would breathe into it it would pass and that got me through that particular moment and then as i kind of built on that over the years i also added this whole bit to it of like okay when you're feeling this way you're not doing your best thinking like now is not the time to draw any conclusions about yourself or the future or what you are capable of or what you're not capable of just wait like find the feeling breathe into it allow it to pass any thoughts that you have or whatever just put a pin in it right now like put it to the side don't draw any conclusions right now just wait because this is not what you believe all the time this is not what you feel all the time this will pass it has passed before it will pass again before you make any decisions or you know start deciding what you believe wait until you feel different and and that has kind of become my whole thing it's essentially like find the visceral sense of what you're experiencing and this works for me it it's like a big mistake that i made when i first started trying to coach this stuff like many years ago now was thinking that this approach would work for everyone and of course it fucking doesn't <laughs> like <laughs> it works great for me but other people might draw inspiration from it but like you you guys were saying earlier like different approaches for different people but this approach for me of find the feeling in your body breathe into it address the visceral visceral sense of the of the emotion and the and the physical discomfort breathe and wait that that is essentially my process at this point it's not comfortable like there are obviously parts of it that feel like sliding down a slippery dip made of cheese graters but it that that peak of the feeling passes and i've i've just come to allow myself a bit of patience in those moments to know that this peak discomfort will pass it sucks but it will pass what i find so fascinating is that i i'm going to assume you've never taken my body image course <laughs> No, no, I, I know. Not. I know. I'm you sure haven't. it's wonderful, but I haven't. No, taken no. It I'm. I, I know. I'm not saying it for that reason. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you haven't taken it. And you've just described um, one of the weeks that I talk about flooding and flooding and pausing. You've just described it in different words. And I feel like we've all. What's what? What ha this all has to do with life after diets is like. We used to do. We used to be confronted with all these situations and be like eating disorder behavior. That's the way out. That's what I do. That's my technique. It's not breathing in. It's not feeling. Finding the feeling. It's not spirituality. It's not my grandma. It's. It's my eating disorder behavior. And like life after diets, I think, is this exploration of what for what for you, this is how you find yours. I've I have you know, I have mine. Some people have meditation and different things land for different people for different reasons. But almost in this similar sort of like the, the common thread underneath it is just like not running away. Like mm -hmm. there's just something about being with it and and figuring out how that looks. But it's it's to me, it's like that none of this was ever accessible before because I had a go-to. Like I had something that I was like, I don't like this. I'm out and I'm going to do this thing. And that's how I get through that. And then you just build, that's just the pattern you make. 
And this stuff doesn't come up because because you, you have this other thing that's quicker and easier and path of least resistance. And so, I don't know, to me, this is like, it's, it's just like, this is what you, this is part of what I think life after diets is, has allowed, you know what I mean? It's like this kind of thing. And I just think it's interesting that you, yeah, we've had like, there's these similar sort of things um, without ever having necessarily like learned from one another. Mm. Um, but that, yeah, they're, they're all coming to a similar place. On that, very cool note about life after diets. Is there any message that you guys would like to give as we wrap up for anyone that might be in a rough place and find themselves still struggling? Come listen to life after diets. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's to find resonance because I think there's so much safety in resonance with people. So people that listen to your podcast, for example, will be resonating with you, Marcus, in the way that you talk about it. And if anyone's resonated with us, then our podcast might be helpful too. Stories and places where you hear people talking about their experience and you go, oh, gosh, you too? I'm not on my own? That, I think, is the first place to try to understand. If people are right at the beginning, obviously, if they're further along, it's depends on where they're at what I would say but that's usually the first place because we understand ourselves more as well through hearing experiences that we resonate with I think almost like jumping off that I think that offers hope right like it gives you a feeling that resonance offers some feeling of hope and uh and that when you feel that way even even sometimes I know I would have listened to potentially a podcast like this and be like yeah I feel this and that I would have left with maybe a, a sense of like hope and then maybe the next day it would have all come crashing down and I would have been like, never mind. Like, why did I hope? And I feel like it's like expecting that you will have hope and then you will have hopelessness and that th- this will occur and you can predict it and it will happen. And that doesn't mean anything. Like, it just means that you keep, you know, you keep kind of putting, put one in front of the other. And again, hope will come and then it will go. And then it went, you know, and that this is um, not a sign of like, it's gone but that it's just you're on a different part of the spectrum at the moment and that it's part of it's part of humanness um for that to happen i think that that's that was a quite a vulnerable place to be in when you lose it and the, the stories you want to make there thank you so much for joining me for this episode today guys i will make sure that there are links to the life after diets podcast in the episode description thanks marcus thanks yes. for having us Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. If you would like to reach out to myself, Sarah, or Stephanie, or if you just want to catch the Life After Diets podcast, if you're not already following that particular podcast, which I would recommend as a belter of a resource, there will be links in the episode description. My name's Marcus Kane. This was Strong Not Starving, and I'll see you next week.